Alright, so if aliens visited this planet and offered our country unlimited resources in exchange for all the black people in it, you think the majority of white people in our country would accept the offer? Stay tuned. I've had people ask me in book reading, you're, you're, you're too discouraging for our young people. But it's, it's like racism is permanent, you know, which moment. I think that, that, that telling the truth as you see it is never discouraging. It, it can be enlightening. Things have changed, but you're saying at, at its root it hasn't That's and right. it can't. And if the things have taken, taken different forms, uh, the subordination takes different forms. Okay. Welcome to the Space Traders Podcast. My name's Ray Sean, and on this podcast, we're taking a look at some of the stories written by civil rights lawyer and activist, scholar and professor Dr. Derek Bell, and reflecting on his perspectives about racism in America. And so I asked this question at the beginning because in this episode, we're still looking at the parable of the space traders where Derek Bell actually plays out this scenario of aliens visiting the U.S. and offering unlimited resources to the country in exchange for the nation's black citizens. The story unpacks how the aliens offer affects the entire society in the realm of law, politics, religion, and even the economy. It's Bell's most famous story, so famous that it's even got a short film. So look, you can go back, listen to the last episode where I give an overview of the story, or you can read a PDF or even watch the short film of the story at thespacetraderspod.com. Last time, I gave some of my own reflections about the story as to its believability, and then we spent some time talking about the story's main character, a guy named Gleason Golightly, the black politically conservative economics professor who attempts to stop the trade, but finds himself in a difficult place because nobody will listen to him. So in this episode, we're going to continue looking at the space traders parable, and we're going to take a look at Bell's theory of interest convergence at work all throughout this story, which is the theory behind most, if not all, of Bell's parables. But the space trader story is probably Bell's magnum opus of interest convergence. And so I've said it a few times throughout the last few episodes, but I'll define it again. If you're hearing it for the first time, interest convergence is the theory that black interests in achieving racial equality in this country will only be accommodated when they're aligned to or converge with white interests. This is Bell's main point throughout this story, and although he's created this futuristic scenario in which interest convergence plays out, everything he includes in this story that leads up to black people essentially being sacrificed and being sent off into space is grounded in our nation's history. What he's showing is this pattern of domineering white self-interest that sacrificed black people, black interests, and even other racial minorities in the past, and how racism adapts and then persists into the present and even into the future. And that points to Derrick Bell's belief in the permanence of racism, or also what's called racial realism. 
And this is a pattern that he believes won't end. In the beginning of his book, Faces at the Bottom of the Well, Derek Bell says this, he says, ever present, always lurking in the shadow of current events is the real possibility that an unexpected coincidence of events at some point in the future, like those that occurred in the past, will persuade whites to reach a consensus that a major benefit to the nation justifies an ultimate sacrifice of black rights or lives. And so for Bell, this nation is a country where the sacrificing of black interests and black people is something that's always on the table. And this isn't meant to be overly cynical or despairing. Bell says these things from a posture of defiance. His hope is that by reading these fictional stories about this real historical pattern of racism, that it'll ultimately do two things. Firstly, it'll shatter what he believes is the false notion that many people hold that gradualism and this kind of slow uphill climb towards racial equality is the only way that racism in America will end. And secondly, he also says these things to help blacks not to settle for symbolic rather than substantive solutions. Things like holidays or poor legislation or policies that end up being rolled back in token government positions. So before we jump back in, go read the story, watch the short film. It'll definitely help you have a better grasp of the things that Bell's pointing out in this story as we go through it. So we'll take a minute and then we'll be right back. Alright, so I asked this question in the last episode, and I'll ask it again. Do you believe that this space trader scenario is possible? Do you believe that the majority of white people in this country would come together to accept an offer like this for the nation's flourishing and consequently send black people away with aliens? Well, different things will shape our answers, where you stand politically, what you know about our nation's history, and maybe even some of your assumptions about humanity. In the last episode, I quoted a study by a law professor who said that the majority of her black students thought that the trade was certainly possible, and most of her white students concurred. In my own experiences, the black people that I've shared this story with definitely think that it's possible. But what does Derek Bell think? Well, in his book titled Silent Covenants, Bell states this. He says, following the publication of this story, I read portions of it to numerous audiences. When asked whether they could imagine such an event, blacks were overwhelmingly certain that it could happen. Whites were less certain. Then I indicated that I was not interested in how they would personally vote, but suggested they consider the whites in a community they knew well. I asked for a show of hands if they felt a majority of that community would, in the privacy of the voting booth, vote for the trade. Slowly and almost painfully, a majority of the whites would raise their hands. And Bell goes on to say that my audience polls were far from scientific, but together with both history and the current conditions reviewed above, I am convinced that the potential for silent racial covenants that would endanger all black people is real. Acknowledgement is not the needed assurance that it will not happen, but it is a necessary first step to assurance. So aside from the personal experiences of people, it's the history of this country that makes this sci-fi nightmare so believable, history that we don't often hear about. And so in this story, Bell describes how interest convergence has worked in the past to show how what's happening in this story's present isn't anything new. 
the story, it forces us to face history. In an article about Bell's parables, George Taylor, a professor at the University of Pittsburgh Law School, he says this about the space trader's story. He says, if it is true, though, that the space traders forces us to face this history, it does more than simply challenge us to remember as our history a past we would rather forget. It simultaneously asks us to confront the fact that this history operates in our present and may presage our future. So where do we see the history of interest convergence playing out in this story? Well, the first place that we see it is in the president's cabinet meeting as they're discussing whether or not they should accept the aliens offer. Remember, in the story, the country's in a pretty precarious position. It's suffering financially and economically. Natural resources have been exploited. And Bell says that the U.S. was struggling to survive like any third world nation. That's the context in which this president and his cabinet are considering accepting the trade. Well, in the meeting, the cabinet urges the president to accept the trade because it'll solve America's problems, but it'll also boost the president's party in an election year. And the president himself says that the trade might provide the ultimate solution to America's racial experiment. And so they start looking at the pros and the cons of sending away America's black citizens into space in exchange for the flourishing of the country. The Secretary of Health and Human Services, who wants more justifications for the trade before supporting it, she brings up the large percentage of blacks who rely on welfare and federal social services and how their absence might ease the state and federal budgets. But as a con, she brings up the medical and psychological toll that the trade will have on the rest of the country, namely the guilt that white people would experience for sending blacks away. The Secretary of the Interior, who's all for the trade, he intervenes and then he makes this statement. He says, I've never considered myself a particularly courageous individual, Mr. President, but if I could guarantee prosperity for this great country by giving my life or going off with the space traders, I would do it without hesitation. And if I would do it, I think every red-blooded American with an ounce of patriotism would as well. Well, he receives an applause after making this statement. But this statement, it mirrors a statement that was previously made by President Abraham Lincoln in another era when the nation was facing crisis. During the Civil War, in August of 1862, President Lincoln, who, although he despised slavery, previously had no interest in ending it as president, he was facing pressure from abolitionists, slaves, and even some members of Congress and some Union generals who were freeing slaves in the South on their own initiative, and he decided that ending slavery by issuing the Emancipation Proclamation was the only way for the Union to be preserved. When he spoke to a newspaper editor named Horace Greeley, Lincoln said this. He said, quote, I would save the Union. I would save it the shortest way under the Constitution. The sooner national authority can be restored, the nearer the Union will be the Union as it was. If there be those who would not save the Union unless they could at the same time save slavery, I do not agree with them. If there be those who would not save the Union unless they could at the same time destroy slavery, I do not agree with them. My paramount objective in this struggle is to save the Union and is not either to save or destroy slavery. If I could save the Union without freeing any slave, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing some and leaving others alone, I would, do also, I would also do that. What I do about slavery and the colored race, I do because I believe it helps to save the Union. 
So much like the space trader story, during a time of crisis, the interests of the white majority, and in this case, in the story, the president, are to preserve the country as a first priority. And white supremacy will do whatever it takes in the pursuit of that, which sometimes is either converging with black interests for racial equality, as seen in things like the Emancipation Proclamation and Brown versus the Board of Education, or at other times, doing whatever it takes means sacrificing black interests and even black people like what happens in the story of the space traders. And so, in reflecting on Lincoln's actions, Bell says, here was, for perhaps the first and last time, a president of the United States acknowledging that the civil rights of blacks, even the basic right not to be a slave in society dedicated to individual liberty, must take a lower priority to the preservation of the Union. Bell says, the last time, because while the pattern of sacrificing the rights of black people would continue in this country, the open acknowledgement of it would become much more subtle. What happens next in the story is that the Secretary of Defense likens the Secretary of the Interior's comments to the courage of men and women serving in the military. So he suggests that they might think of putting together a legislative package that's based on the Selective Service Act of 1918, which required all men between certain ages to register for military service. The Supreme Court upheld that the act was constitutional in 1918, which meant that the government had the power to enforce U.S. citizens to military duty. Only, with this legislation in the story, it would be blacks who would be legally enforced by the government to step forward and serve their country by boarding these intergalactic ships. So what's ironic, and Bell doesn't include it in any commentary on the story, but as long as the Selective Service Act has been around since 1917, blacks have never received equal treatment in the draft. When the act was enacted before World War I, an article by Paul Murray in the Journal of Black Studies says that 367,000 blacks were inducted in the draft, separately from whites because of segregation. And although blacks made up 9.63% of the total registration of whites and blacks, they made up to 13% of those drafted. And while 34% of blacks who registered were inducted into the draft, only 24% of whites were drafted. And more than this, local draft boards, which were overwhelmingly white, discriminated against black registrants, often forcing those who were unfit for service into the army while allowing white men with no exemptions to escape the draft. Black citizens actually welcomed the draft and responded to it with more receptiveness than whites due to a history of military exclusion and seeing induction into the military as a symbol of American acceptance in the push towards racial equality. And on the contrary, Murray says that any shirking of military duty was feared as a possible justification for continued discrimination in a civilian society. So here's something of interest convergence at work because with majority white interests invested in raising an army and winning the war, blacks saw an opportunity to serve with the aim of pursuing racial equality. And the white power structure discriminated against blacks and took advantage of black registrants by inducting them in larger numbers even though they had a smaller representation. Blacks were being sent off to defend and die for a country that was discriminating against them even in its sending them to war. The overall point of this in the story is that the language of selective service is the play for how the government's going to get blacks to legally board these spaceships. But this discrimination was being cloaked in the language of patriotism and making sacrifices as citizens of this country, when in reality, it was just furthering white interests. 
This is exactly what happened between Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln during the Civil War as well, where after the Emancipation Proclamation was passed, Douglass helped to recruit black soldiers to fight for the Union, something Lincoln was originally against. But while free black soldiers were recruited and fought for the Union, they faced discrimination in pay and treatment, and many of them were captured, tortured, and re-enslaved by Confederates without any retaliation by Lincoln or the War Department, which caused Douglass to regret his decision. And so in the story of the space traders, this is the same strategy that the president's cabinet wants to use the black conservative Gleason Golightly for, sacrificing black rights and bodies ultimately to pursue white interests. So the cabinet meeting continues, and Golightly, who opposes the trade, believing it to be group banishment at best and genocide at worst, he tries to get the cabinet to place the space trader situation in a historical perspective. This wasn't the first time that the country pursued removing black people from America. Abolitionists who wanted to end slavery, but who also thought it was impossible or unfeasible to integrate freed blacks into a society, advocated for sending black people back to Africa. Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin were both advocates for immigration. In 1816, the American Colonization Society was formed with the aim to return enslaved black people to Africa. And from 1822 to the beginning of the Civil War, 15,000 black people were taken back to Africa to the newly colonized settlement of Liberia. President Lincoln advocated for colonization all throughout his years as a politician and even saw it as a solution to slavery. And in 1862, he even hosted several black people at the White House to come up with a plan for colonization in Central America. After the Emancipation Proclamation, there were many abolitionists who promoted suffrage for blacks and integration in, into society, but there were also many voices who were skeptical if blacks could live as free and flourishing citizens in a white society. And so in the story, Bell quotes Jacob Merritt, a Michigan senator from 1866, who doubted the ability of blacks to remain in the country after slavery. Bell, through Go Lightly, says that Merritt proposed sanctuary rather than equality and said that even though blacks have striven for equality, sanctuary remains the more accurate description of black citizenship. So Bell's point is that while it might not be admitted explicitly, some whites from the post-Civil War era, even until now, see black citizens of this country as merely occupants or even a kind of domestic refugee of this country rather than full citizens, which makes them easier to be sacrificed. So moving on, the next time that we see this historical pattern coming up again in this story is on January 7th, 10 days before the trade actually takes place. Black people had been arguing that the trade violated their constitutional rights, and so pro-trade groups moved quickly to establish a constitutional convention in Philadelphia where they drafted the 27th Amendment, which subjected every U.S. citizen to the call of Congress to special selection for domestic and international needs. They plan to ratify the amendment by vote on January 15th, and if it went through, the amendment would require all blacks to be inducted into special service for transportation under the terms of the space traders offer. Well, on January 10th, 
pro-ratification groups decided to come together and appeal to what they believe was the original intent of the constitutional framers from 1787, saying that the framers intended America to be a white country. The evidence of their intentions is present in the original constitution. After more than 137 years of good faith efforts to build a healthy, stable, interracial nation, we have concluded, as the framers did in the beginning, that our survival today requires that we sacrifice the rights of blacks in order to protect and further the interests of whites. The framers' example must be our guide. Patriotism, and not pity, must govern our decision. So I won't get into it too much in this episode because Bell has another parable called the Chronicle of the Constitutional Contradiction that unpacks what he says here even more. But his point refers to what he calls a racial sacrifice covenant, which is what happens when to settle potentially costly differences between two opposing groups of whites, a compromise is affected that depends on the involuntary sacrifice of black rights or interests. And in the framing of the Constitution, it was black interests and rights that were sacrificed for America's independence. Some of the framers opposed slavery and some promoted it, and some were verbal opponents of slavery who themselves owned slaves. But when it came down to it, at the Constitutional Convention of 1787, white slavery opponents compromised with white slave owners and decided, as Bell states, that the hopes of blacks free and slave for inclusion in the new government guaranteeing liberty for all must be sacrificed to resolve conflicts between whites of differing views. There was this covenant and compromise that was made between two opposing parties of whites that ended up sacrificing the rights of black people to pursue a common interest. So back to the story. In response to this statement by pro-ratification groups, liberal groups against the trade respond with this slippery trade slope argument saying that if we do this to black people, then who's next? But then the pro-trade groups just doubled down by saying that sacrificing black rights has always been necessary in order to preserve the country. The Constitutional Convention of 1787 was just one example of this, as the pro-trade groups in the story said, without the compromises on slavery in the Constitution of 1787, there would be no America. Furthermore, they argued, if black rights weren't sacrificed back in 1787, there'd be no foundation for emancipation or the post-Civil War amendments such as the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to be included in the Constitution. They also made the argument that in order for progress to be made in this country, millions of people, including blacks, necessarily gave up their lives and their rights. And when it comes specifically to black interests and rights being sacrificed, it wasn't really due to blatant racism, but fortuitous fate. Now, this term fortuitous fate points to something that Bell talks about at length in his book Silent Covenants as well. This idea of racial fortuity where blacks are more like incidental beneficiaries when it comes to policymaking and law. Bell says that white policymakers adopt racial policies that sacrifice black interests or recognize and provide relief for discrimination in accordance with their view of the fortuitous convergence of events. Take the Emancipation Proclamation. It was ultimately about preserving the Union more than freeing the slaves. Legally, it actually didn't free any of the slaves because its terms only applied to Confederate states, not to the states and territories who were part of the Union. It also permitted 200,000 freed blacks to join the Union Army, which helped strengthen their ranks. 
Blacks really had no say in the executive order and were mostly fortuitous beneficiaries in between two opposing white parties. Bell also refers to the post-Civil War amendments, the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery, the 14th Amendment, which granted citizenship to black people or, quote, all persons born or naturalized in the U.S., and the 15th Amendment, which granted black men the right to vote. Although blacks stood to benefit from each of these amendments, they were ratified in an effort to secure the gains that Lincoln's Republicans had achieved, which would be undone if Democrats came into political power. The amendments also secured Republican power in Congress because black votes would be theirs for decades to come. You also see racial fortuity in a negative sense where blacks were incidental beneficiaries of the Compromise of 1877, also known as the Hayes-Tilden Compromise, where during Reconstruction, a close presidential election between Rutherford Hayes and Samuel Tilden went to Hayes due to conversations between Republicans and Democrats that ultimately led to the compromise that if the Republican Hayes took office, then Republicans would remove remaining, even largely black federal troops from the South, troops that were protecting the newly freed and successful blacks from the hostility of white Southerners. And this compromise would eventually lead to retrenchment, disenfranchisement, lynchings, the black exodus of 1879, and eventually the Jim Crow era. And so back to the story, all of this is to unpack the claim that these pro-trade groups were making in the space trader story that blacks are and have always been simply incidental beneficiaries between two parties. And the things that have happened to them in this country aren't as much about race as they are a fortuitous fate, a historic necessity. This time, according to the pro-trade groups in the story, blacks are just incidental beneficiaries between the U.S. government and these intergalactic visitors. And as unfortunate as it is, they're needed to sacrifice again for the good of the country. Lastly, the next place where we see interest convergence is when, just before the ratification of the 27th Amendment to the Constitution, the Supreme Court rejects the appeals of anti-trade blacks and whites. The court refuses to intervene due to the political nature of the situation, which Bell points back to a precedent established in the Luther v. Borden case in 1849, where the Supreme Court defers to the body politic or Congress and the president in the case of making a judgment about political questions. It was a unanimous decision by the court, and the court also concluded that if the 27th Amendment on the enlistment of black people was in accordance with the Constitution, then blacks wouldn't be able to claim a violation of their 14th Amendment rights as citizens, which says that no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. So, just like in episode two of the Chronicle of the Slave Scrolls, Geneva's Crenshaw's words ring true again, where Bell, through Crenshaw, points out the futility of civil rights bills to, quote, protect even basic free speech, when those activities, while perfectly peaceful, happen in a time of crisis or evoke a hostile response from whites, end quote. And so, in this case of the space traders, we see the futility of civil rights bills to protect black rights, liberties, and even lives when a crisis or national necessity demands something else. 
And so if you think Bell is just making this up, look again back at history. In 1942, during World War II, President Franklin Roosevelt signed an executive order that required Japanese Americans to be confined in concentration camps. Fred Korematsu refused to obey the order, stating that it was a violation of his Fifth Amendment rights. And so the Supreme Court in Korematsu versus the United States ruled that the executive order was valid and Japanese American rights weren't violated, and that the order did not show racial prejudice, but rather responded to the strategic imperative of keeping the U.S., and particularly the West Coast, the region nearest Japan, secure from invasion. Once again, the priority isn't the rights of citizens and the racial minority, but the keeping of the U.S. And it's crazy how these words about this precedent by the court virtually mirror the words spoken by the president in the Space Traders parable, who in a nationally televised address says this, that while these citizens are only of one racial group, there is absolutely no evidence whatsoever to indicate that the selection was intended to discriminate against any race or religion or ethnic background. White supremacy will prioritize its own interests over the interests of minorities and even sacrifice their rights while claiming such actions have nothing to do with race. And so in the same spirit of deferment to Congress, the court also noted that they wouldn't really be able to do anything about the petitions and appeals of blacks against the trade. Bell cites the case of Giles versus Harris, where blacks who were attempting to vote and face massive opposition from whites petitioned the court to protect their right to vote. And in his affirmation to deny the relief to the blacks who petitioned, Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes claimed that all the court could do to interfere would be to put their names on the rolls, which, in Holmes's words, would be an empty form. Something more would need to be done by the legislative branch that the courts just weren't willing to do. So, altogether, the Supreme Court doesn't come to the defense of the rights of the nation's black citizens. In times of crisis or constitutionally aligned legislative action that impacts blacks negatively. And this is the historical pattern that the Space Traders parable points back to. Lastly, on January 15th, the amendment was put to a referendum and American citizens voted 70% to 30% to ratify the constitutional amendment that provided a legal basis for the acceptance of the Space Traders offer. Here, Bell points to the fate of the minority rights when they're subjected to referendums. He's not against the democratic process, but he states that, quote, the referendum, while entitled to judicial respect, is not wholly beyond constitutional scrutiny, end quote. Bell believes that because racism is such a pervasive influence, it isn't just an interpersonal reality, it affects the way that people, particularly white people, vote and approve or disprove policies that are perceived to aid blacks in the pursuit of racial equality. He traces this pattern back to the 17th century, where, in an effort to diffuse tensions with small farmers who were threatening rebellion, lower-class white farmers were given the right to vote, and at the same time, landowners started changing and extending the terms of black indentured servanthood to be for life, while white indentured servants could work under contractual terms and eventually gain their freedom. And so this, along with other changes in the law, gave whites power over blacks and created a racial hierarchy over class structure, which pitted lower class whites against blacks who were often faced with the same challenges economically. This continued as society changed from agrarian to industrial. So when the government began to develop policies that assisted blacks, lower class whites often resisted them, feeling as though they were unfair and that blacks were undeserving. And they often resisted violently, but also through the vote. 
And so if in America race is more important than class, Bell points out that the high priority many whites give to maintaining racial superiority will undoubtedly be expressed at the ballot box. And so Bell believes that the referendum has been a most effective facilitator of the bias, discrimination and prejudice, which has marred American democracy from its earliest day. And in short, this is why, in the story, the outcome of the referendum was never really in doubt. And it's why government agencies had already made preparations to begin transferring black people to the alien ships. Again, Bell's entire aim throughout this story has been to point to the historical pattern of how the interests of the white majority in our nation, which are at times opposed to one another, are prioritized over and above the rights and interests of black people and racial minorities. At times, this prioritization means benefits for blacks or disadvantages and the sacrificing of their rights. And Bell argues that this racial fortuity has been displayed in some of the greatest legal victories and setbacks concerning race in our country, in everything from the Emancipation Proclamation, the post-Civil War amendments, and Brown versus the Board of Education. It's the consistency of this pattern, along with racism's adaptation, that leads Bell to the conclusion of racism's permanence and Blacks' perpetual status as second-class citizens in America. We'll be back in a minute. Bell's right, and America's major racial legal victories, while beneficial to blacks, are merely instances of fortuity that ultimately preserve white interests, then how you fight racism actually looks somewhat different than the typical ways that we've seen historically. Historically, those who have been most adamant in the fight against racism have been white progressives or liberals and black civil rights activists and professionals. Bell displays this in the parable when Gleason Golightly goes to the anti-trade coalition event that's made of black and liberal white politicians, civil rights representatives, and progressive academics. And so, on the last episode, we spent a lot of time discussing the black neoconservatism of the story's main character, Gleason Golightly, and how his views reflect a very small slice of intellectual and political black thought in America. Yet the views of black conservatives, however sincere or insincere their motives are, they're often platformed by the majority white society. As a progressive, Bell, along with many other black scholars, were and are frustrated with the perspectives of many black conservatives for how they minimize the effects of racism while weaponizing the faults of the black community against them. But Bell, as the story highlights, also has some differences with the way that white liberals and politicians and black civil rights leaders address solutions to racism. In the story, they were planning on direct action protests and boycotts and had even planned for how they would respond if the government started kidnapping blacks. And so when Gleason Golightly speaks in front of the anti-trade coalition, one of the first things that he points out is the hollow reassurances often given by white liberals and politicians who, while speaking up for black Americans, try to convince us in the face of the evils of racism that America is better than its racial history or that this isn't America or that America is better than this. So Bell, through the words of Golightly, says that the problem with this is that those whites who are most vigorous in their assurances are least able to rebut the contrary teaching of both historic fact and present reality, which means that this pattern of racial sacrifice is often oblivious to white progressives. And according to Bell, 
They possess an optimism about America's ability to deal with race that fails to connect with the actual devastating experiences of blacks. In the story, Gleason Golightly goes on to say this, that black people know for a fact what you, their leaders, fear to face. Black people know your plans for legislation, litigation, and protests cannot prevail against the tradition of sacrificing black rights. Indeed, your efforts will simply add a veneer of face-saving uncertainty to a debate whose outcome is not only predictable, but inevitable. Flying in the face of our history, you are still relying on the assumption that whites really want to grant justice to blacks, really want to alleviate onerous racial conditions. Golightly's words echo the sentiments of the more radical black civil rights tradition. Voices like Malcolm X, who often criticized white liberals for deceitfully using black interests to further their own ends and cooperating with black civil rights leaders to accomplish them. But even more than that, Bell accuses white progressives of still believing that white supremacy actually wants to grant justice to blacks, a belief that's completely contrary to the interest-driven pattern that Bell sees at work throughout history. But Bell also criticizes black civil rights leadership as well for their strategy of fighting racism from a purely morality-driven lens. Protests, truth-telling, legislation, and appealing to the American conscience certainly has its place. But how effective have these things been in the fight against racism? Is there a better way? Well, in the story, since Golightly believes that what's at work behind the government's willingness to accept the space trader's offer is the interest of preserving the country over and above black interests, he believes that the best strategy is to outsmart white people and appeal to their interests, not necessarily to get them to call off the trade, but to modify it. Golightly's plan, it starts with him saying this, a major, perhaps the principal motivation for racism in this country is the deeply held belief that black people should not have anything that white people don't have. He then goes into how whites insist on better jobs and schools and income and neighborhoods, and even talks about the ways that white people take black culture. What if, Golightly asks, we make white people's acquisitiveness work for our interests? What if we convince them that the space traders are taking black people to a land flowing with milk and honey? Just like the pattern of white resistance and jealousy to government aid and programs for black people, things like affirmative action, they receive the response of reverse racism by whites. Let's use that to our advantage, and it'll inspire whites to institute such litigation on the grounds that limiting the space traders offer to black people is unconstitutional discrimination against whites. Flip it on them, Golightly proposes. So although Golightly doesn't say anything critical of black leadership in this story, Bell represents these leaders collectively through Justin Jasper, the well-known Baptist minister who insists on interrupting Golightly to claim the moral high ground. Jasper rallies the crowd with his oratorical skills and then promotes truth-telling about racism and what it's cost him, things like imprisonment, loss of co-workers in the struggle. Jasper insists on calling out racism as morally wrong and evil, and he insists on not leaving the country until they drag him out involuntarily like whites involuntarily brought his ancestors to the country. He then proceeded to lead everyone in singing Amazing Grace, drowning out Golightly's plan. So Bell's criticism of civil rights representatives is rooted in the fact that their strategy appeals to the conscience of whites in power rather than their interest. Jasper was from a tradition that tried to get whites to do right by black people because it was the right thing to do, according to Bell. And this was futile because it failed to see or address the pattern of how racism actually plays out in society through power. And Golightly's strategy involved its own kind of power, the power of cunning and guile to outsmart and survive. 
Golightly believes that that's what black people have and have always had. And Bell states that it was only civil rights professionals who confused integrity with foolhardiness. And so after the encounter with Jasper at the Anti-Trade Coalition, Golightly is left to himself muttering, saying this, that faith in God is fine, but God expects us to use common sense that he gave us to get out of life-threatening situations. Overall, Bell's critique of white progressives and black civil rights professionals is having an optimism and unquestioned belief in the eventual resolution of the country's racial conflict. In his article titled Racial Remediation, A Historical Perspective on Current Conditions, Bell states that this attitude is an accepted article of the American faith and that there is a national assumption that in several more years, what conservatives believe, or after the enactment of still more civil rights laws, what liberals often believe, remaining obstacles to liberty and justice will finally fade away. Bipartisan optimism flourishing in the face of so much contrary history demands more scrutiny than it has received. And we could say that Bell's critique of both liberals and conservatives in addressing the nation's problems with race is a misguided hope to change this country from what it never was to what it has never been. So thanks for listening. There's still so much in this story that we could unpack, and I wish I had more time. You've got things in it like the CEOs of the private sector who got together to oppose the trade and ultimately thought about how the absence of blacks would affect their, their bottom line and their profits and their interests. And then you have the praise that evangelical televangelists hold to try to convince black people to go with the traders because ultimately their interests are in the flourishing of the nation even more than the souls of their largely black followings. And Bell also highlights the groups of people who offer to help out blacks out of a legitimate fear that they'll be the next one to face the effects of white supremacy. And there's so much more, but everything that this story points to is black people, however much progress we've made, and even amidst whatever kind of legal progress takes place in this country, how we so often experience the continued effects of racial fortuity, while the core of our nation's racial issues is often left unaddressed. As always, agree or disagree with Bell in his experiences and his scholarship and his opinions, but at least let's consider them. So again, thanks for listening. Leave a rating or review on iTunes, subscribe, and come back in a few weeks for the next episode. We'll see you then.